Gracious, gracious God, how good it is to be reminded, Lord, that, uh, that we sin in ways that make us do your judgment. We live in a world of justifying and minimizing. We live in a world of distraction, a world forgetting the God who made us, the one who sustains us with life every moment of every day. And Lord, um, it's good to be reminded that we are fallen short and we are due judgment and we'll face it one day. But Lord, it is even better, the blood of your son, which cries out better than the blood of Abel, to be reminded that he interposed, he interceded, he took our place. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for forgiveness. And Lord, let that blood be on my hands and lay it, let it be on us. Let us be covered. Fathers, we come to this passage this morning about judgment. And yet there is so much that is rich that you show us about who you are. Would you lead? Lord, please speak and convict. Please comfort and heal. Please help us, Lord, to draw near. Take up all that concerns us and do your work now. Even as we have worshipped, let us continue to worship. Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ian Duguid tells us that there are many people today that feel that maybe the worst aspect of religion is its tendency to judge people. There may well be some truth to that. Some, though, in light of that, want to get rid of the idea of judging altogether. Deguid describes it this way. He said, uh, many of these are people who like the word fine. Man, don't worry about it. Dude, I'm fine. It's fine. You're fine. We're fine. They're fine. It's all fine. In fact, everybody's fine except for those people who judge. They're not fine. The only ones that we can rightly judge are those who judge. They're not fine. I don't like that. But the Lord judges. And it's actually his job to judge. And the world, in fact, would be a hopeless place if he didn't judge. Because try as it might, our imperfect courts our imperfect societies, our finite knowledge, we would never see perfect justice. It can't be achieved here on this earth. And once in a while, a case will make headlines in a way that will bring us again to that stunning realization that real justice can't ever be done. We can't bring back all those who were killed in the Boston Marathon bombing no matter how many times we kill over and over again those who did the killing, right? Just can't be made right. Or pick whatever scenario you want. Families today in Ukraine driven from their homes through no fault of their own, and it is unjust and unrighteous. What could be done to make it right? It would be a hopeless world if we had a God who never judged but we have a God who does. And that's a very, very good thing. And yet for us at times, and especially in places in Scripture when we come, we wrestle with his speaking of judgment. Although if we linger and let him speak, I 
I think we'll see there is much here to hear. In fact, much to hear that we often may not hear elsewhere. It is because there are passages like the one we're looking at in the book of Zephaniah and have been. That, among other things, that would lead C.S. Lewis to say this. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Zephaniah speaks the Lord's oracles of judgment upon a very deserving people in the 7th century B.C., the 620s, probably when this little book was written. And yet even here we can see how ultimately it is very, very good. Good that God will in fact judge and even better in fact that he will pronounce his judgments because in part his purpose in proclaiming justice is so that there may be some who might miss it or at the very least so there may be some who might be more prepared for it. As I said of Zephaniah last week, And Lord willing, if I remember, I'll say it again next week. This cloud of deepest darkness with its certainty of imminent judgment will be dissipated by the breaking rays of a future, further future brightness whose light sings the sweet song of the coming of the reign of our Savior. This little book will climax in one of the sweetest pictures of salvation in all of Scripture. It's too bad it is a much neglected book, but we'll get there, not today. And what's more, even within such clear and certain judgment, in fact, I think because of the clarity and certainty of the judgment we'll find spoken of in Zephaniah, we see much of the character of our God. We see him clearly and we see him richly. So this morning, let's see his character and ultimately in so doing, let's also get a glimpse of his heart. I'm going to read the first portion of our passage today. Join me in Zephaniah chapter 2. We will start in verse 4. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst, all beasts which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city, which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts, 
Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Pause there. This message, which is given through a prophet of Judah to the southern kingdom of Judah, Israel having already been conquered and taken into exile, this message by a prophet of Judah here speaks of the day of the Lord with regard to Judah's enemies. What we read of were other places on the face of the earth. And it does, that, it does that so that those in Judah can, if they have ears to hear, they can respond. Here what we have is God through Zephaniah calling his people to return to me. That's what we'll see in all of our passage today. First this morning, in our first portion that we read, we see return and be preserved. Return and be preserved. Zephaniah speaks to Judah by speaking to these other nations. I want you to notice the enemy nations. Actually, before we do that, I want you to notice the first word of our passage. Chapter 2, verse 4, it's the word for. What is for there for? It's there to point us back to what is in verse 3, which was that call to return back to the Lord. He has indicted his people in chapters 1 and 2, and he says this in 2, 3, Seek the Lord. And he's speaking to his own people, Israel. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And you'll remember last week we talked about that Zephaniah's name. It means hidden in Yahweh. And so at the end of that call, saying that there will be a judgment, but come and hide in me, now he's going to give the reason, and our section begins, speaking of all these other nations, with the word for, telling us why we should return and seek the Lord, why we should return and hide in him. This judgment on the nations then begins as a motivation for why the humble should return and seek him now, Zephaniah says. So return and be preserved. And this is supposed to tell us why. So what are the whys? Four whys. Four reasons in this opening section. First, reason to return and be preserved because the Lord is sovereign over his enemies. Return and be preserved first because the Lord is sovereign over his enemies. Zephaniah starts with the local enemies. Uh, verse 4, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. I know you all know your ancient geography and you know exactly where those guys are, right? Don't worry, I didn't either. They're all Philistine countries. They're all on the coastlands. They're all a part of that nation, which is the thorn in the side of Israel ever since they came into the land of Canaan. They were supposed to be a place that would have been overcome, but the people were not as faithful as they should have been. And so the Philistines remained, and they will throughout the history of the people, the, the nation in the land. And they will cause constant trouble, and they will draw Israel away. And in their stronger seasons, they will destroy the Israelites and they will eat their crops at the time of harvest and burn down their fields and take their animals for their own. So the Philistines are mentioned here first. Zephaniah looks to the west and he says, I know the biggest problem you have today. And I'll name it Ashdod, Ekron, and these local places, the nation of the Carathites. And then after looking west, he looks east to Moab and Ammon in verse 8. 
I've heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And by the way, their judgment is very fitting. Moab and Ammon were sons that came from Lot. Lot, who dwelt in Sodom and Gomorrah, tells Moab and Ammon, just like your forefather barely escaped, but you won't. And there is a long history of what Moab and Ammon have done to the nation of Israel that we won't even begin to have time to talk about. The point is, the Lord, through Zephaniah, starts by looking west and then looks east. And he says, I know, I know what your troubles are today. I know your local enemies. And I've got this all in my good time. So what are your local adversaries? What are your daily worries? No, I don't think the Lord is going to smite your boss for you this week. But what is it that you will wake up tomorrow and be concerned about? Or what will you not be able to sleep over as you wrestle with tonight? The Lord knows and he can name them. He can call them out and he is sovereign over anything that is an enemy of his relationship with you. Anything that, be that comes between you and your intimacy with him. And then in, in, in a beautiful literary uh, structure here, Zephaniah then turns to the south and the north. Verse 12, you also, O Ethiopians, some of your translations might say Cush or Egypt. It's a, it's a name that means a region and uh, uh, southern Egypt, maybe Ethiopia, somewhere down there in Africa. This would be, at times, the nation that Israel would be tempted to trust instead of trusting God. So if Babylon or Assyria was on the march and they were going to conquer, and your puny little Israel, you'd go get the, the really big dude that lives next door and say, hey, why don't we get together and we'll fight that guy? Because we're, you know, we're kind of buddies, right? And you would hope that Egypt might help you out. And then 13, so Ethiopia, Cush, is south, and then 13 is north. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And Nineveh, by the way, is the capital city of Assyria. So he spends the longest time talking about Assyria, probably because Assyria is the big boy on the block in the 7th century B.C., the biggest boy on the block. They're the ones who just conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off into exile. And so in this decade... This would be Judah's biggest fear, though Assyria is many, many miles away. And in fact, it's more east than north. But if you go from Assyria to Israel, there's a huge desert in the way. So you've got to go over the desert. So the only way Assyria gets to Israel is to come down from the north. So that's how you always think of Assyria. If you want to go there, you go north, even though they're way over that way. And so the Lord speaks in all the directions. Here, he speaks of those enemies. First, maybe those that don't look like enemies all the time. Maybe those things that we're tempted to trust, like Israel trusted Egypt. What's your Egypt or your Cush this morning? What are you tempted to trust instead of the Lord? Is it coffee? What are you tempted to fear you'd say decaf coffee 
Or maybe you're tempted to fear your friend's disapproval. And so that little dynamic becomes an idol in my life or your life. Powerful things that hold sway like Assyria of that day. And yet the Lord is sovereign over all enemies that come between you and intimacy with him. What is it today? I encourage you. You may even just jot it down. Um, Maybe you need to write it on another piece of paper and slip it in your Bible so nobody else sees it. If the Lord brings something to mind, those idols you trust or those idols which are the kinds of gods which are no fun, the idols that you fear, maybe the Lord today would encourage you through his words to Zephaniah, I'm sovereign over all of these. Your local, daily, nearby, next door bullies and those that live far off, but occasionally they can control your life from a distance. Yahweh is Lord over all the earth. He's covered all four directions. And he's covered uh, about the, the widest diversity of, of lands and cultures and sophistications and technologies that we could probably find on the face of the earth in that day by canvassing these four different groups in their stages of development. The Lord says, I am sovereign. And I am the maker of all of these, and I will return. And so return to him and be preserved. Because the Lord is sovereign over his enemies. I'm still going with that same idea. Don't worry, this is the longest one. I want to mention to you a couple other things because it's so sweet here. Notice what uh, it says that, that Yahweh will do with all of their troubles and all of their fears. With all of their idols. Did you catch it there in verse 11? The Lord will be terrifying to them. That's speaking of the people. And then he says, for he will starve all the guards, all the gods, pardon me, starve all the gods of the earth. The Lord will emaciate the gods of the nations. It's a beautiful little Hebrew term. It just means he will give them a thinness. Your big tough gods are going to look puny. When I come. Brother or sister, that is good news. Because the things that drive me to fear or the things that I'm tempted to trust instead of God, when I see how great he is, those things hold no power. They're wimpy and they're, they're weak. It's like uh, trying to give water to a drowning man. It's like trying to sell sand to somebody who lives in the middle of the desert. I've got more than what I need. I have a God who's so much better. Ian DeGuid coins the term anorexic gods. I love that little phrase. If you can identify, by the way, what it is that maybe you're most tempted to trust or most tempted to fear, what besides the Lord most drives your heart and your motivations, then maybe this week you might just try as a practice, label that thing anorexic and see if God helps you see it for what it really is. Deguid says this, we're tempted to place our trust in our own gods, the glorious idols that promise us security and significance rather than relying on the Lord alone. Beauty, oh man, everybody likes me because I look good. 
popularity, academic success. I'm just smart. I can think my way out of anything, man. Money, power, position, whatever it might be, all these seem to offer us life, don't they? And DeGuid goes on to say, we grant them enormous power over our feelings. And it is then when they take their place as idols in our lives. Unless we know the Lord God, who is God over all, we will find some other God to worship in one way or another. Many of our hopes, many of the hopes and dreams of our lives are wrapped up in the blessings that are promised by these gods. But the Lord says, I will come in judgment and I will starve out those anorexic gods. I will, I will expose them for their weakness. Notice also in this passage how Yahweh will answer the arrogance of the people. The most powerful and the most arrogant in that day of the four nations I mentioned, five, six, maybe. Which one do you think is probably the one that's arrogant? Well, Assyria. And there it is in verse 15. Speaking of Nineveh, this is the exultant city which dwells securely, who has said in her, her, in her heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Question, when you say those words, who do you think you're challenging? I am, and there is no one besides me. Yahweh, whose, mean, whose name means I am who I am. I am the one who is. And you have that attitude of heart? Fine, you just picked a battle you don't want to pick how she has become a desolation a resting place for beasts everyone who passes by her will hiss it is said of Nineveh arrogance is an invitation to judgment what a good thing that God will judge and humble right last thing I'll just point you to in this section there's so much more but for the sake of time verse 5 I want you to notice that the word of the Lord is against these enemies the word of the Lord is against you middle of verse 5 O Canaan land of the Philistines and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant and then when he gets down to uh, Cush in verse 12 it's the sword of the Lord you also O Ethiopians will be slain by my sword this is a, a good thing God has pronounced what is right and true. His voice has spoken, and his law can never be changed. His word is established firm in the heavens, Psalms says. We might think morality is relative. It changed from last decade, and it'll change again by the next decade. Uh-uh. God says no, and my word is against you. But the Lord is not just all talk. He says, one day there will be a sword too. And there will be action for those who with impunity rebel against my law. Lord, Lord, help me because I am one of those in my heart who rebel with impunity against his law. Lord, I got this. I know better. I've got it figured out. Yeah, really? This is good. And it's also good when we pause and consider the deep brokenness of our world. In the face of cruelty, in the face of unmitigated evil, that God has a word and he has a sword. 
That's why he can say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You don't need to take vengeance, I will do it in my time. And boy, he will. And that's our hope. And without that hope, we would become an embittered people. We would be a hopeless and despairing people if there was no justice to answer the injustice of our world. But we have a God who is sovereign over all his enemies. Second reason, I'm still on point one, to return and be preserved, is because there is a remnant who will be preserved. A remnant will be preserved, he has told us in this section. Look, look, look at verse 7. This is a people, Israel, well, Judah, if you want to be technical, the southern kingdom, who he comes to tell, look, a judgment is coming. And we know that that judgment will come within the generation of those that are alive in the 620s B.C. through Babylon. But can you believe the words that he says in verse 7 of them? Now, he's speaking about the lands of Philistines, but here's what he said. The coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. Did you catch that? Hey, Philistines, I'm against you. And when I'm done with you, you know what's going to happen with your place? My people are going to vacation there. <laughs> my, my, my people are going to have summer cottages on the coast, on your land. The remnant of the house of Judah, they will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. If I'm an Israelite hearing this, I go, whoa, 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 time out. Thank you, Lord, because you'll not only deal with anything that comes between me and you so long as I'm seeking your face, but one day you will, by your power, if I stand in covenant with you by the grace that is now for us, ours in Christ, if I stand in covenant with you, you one day will preserve me as part of that remnant. Jump down to verse 9, middle of 9. Surely Moab and Ammon will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation. But here it is again, the remnant of my people. He jumps to the apple of his eye, the people near his heart. The remnant of my people will plunder them. And the remainder of my nation will inherit them. What words in the midst of judgment? Did you catch it? He just said, you, Israel, you're mine. And I won't give you up. I don't care how rebellious you are. I have purchased you with blood. I've made a covenant with you. I won't let you go. Alec Motier says it this way, in a world brought to ruin under divine judgment. The Lord is at work on behalf of his people to preserve, to enrich, and to bring them into the possession of what he has promised. Do you know why it's such a big deal that, that Israel will possess Philistia? Because that's what they were supposed to do. That's what they were promised to do when they were given a promised land to begin with. And they've never done it yet. And he says, well, you guys couldn't pull it off, but I will. In fact, every promise I've made, even those that depend on you, eventually, I'll get it done, if you're mine. Second reason to return and be preserved is because a remnant will be preserved. There is such a thing. And even in a dark day, brothers and sisters, he is working to preserve his remnant. Third reason, that preserved remnant will be blessed and cared for. Third reason, to return and be preserved because that preserved remnant will be blessed and cared for. 
The Lord is going to give his people the inheritance of their enemies. Just mentioned this. And so notice again, though, with me in verse 7, it says, it doesn't just say that they're going to live in Ashkelon. It says that they're going to pasture on it. It says that they're going to lie down at evening. They're going to be at rest there. And it says, end of seven, the Lord their God will care for them. You think the God, you think that God's any good at doing that? You, you think God knows how to care for you? Yeah, no, probably not. I mean, he's, he's probably okay, but I really need to make sure that, you know, that the temperature setting is right and, you know, I need to pay my bills and, you know, a million other things. Yes, we have responsibilities. But if the Lord can't take care of you, no one can. He knows how to care for every need before we know we have it. You know what, in a sense, verse 7 and verse 9, in the midst of this catalog of judgment in the book of Zephaniah here in the Old Testament, you know what, in a sense, what we have here, this is God telling his people, I will be to you the good shepherd. I will lead you in, in green pastures and by still waters, and you will lie down. It's, it's the pre-echo of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I care for my own. I fight, fight off the wolves and I lead the people where they need to go. Why return and be preserved? Well, if the negative encouragement is not enough, if you choose to preserve yourself, then judgment awaits if you stand against God. But the positive is even better. Because there, in his hands, in the midst of whatever day may come, he is shelter. And he gives pasture. Fourth and finally, return and be preserved. Why? Because the Lord, haha, this one is, is so shocking in this passage, I think. Because the Lord will have worship from all the nations. The fourth reason is because the Lord will have worship from all nations. Did you catch it first time we read it? Eleven. Verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will emaciate all the, guards, all the gods of the earth. Why can't I get that word right? All the gods of the earth, and then here it is. And all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. All the nations? Yeah, all the nations. This has always been God's plan. This does not mean universal salvation. Not everybody will be in heaven singing God's praises. All, all roads lead to heaven. No, it doesn't mean universal salvation. It does mean all peoples will be saved. And Revelation 5 records the vision that John was given of that being fulfilled. We could read dozens of passages, but I'll just throw one at you. If you want to jot down Psalm 47. Oops, I'm going to read from the Bible. Psalm 47, verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. In this place where God is on the throne and worship is happening, did you catch who's doing the singing? The princes of the peoples have assembled themselves, and this is stunning language, as the people of the God of Abraham. So all the pagan, right, tree worshipers, Everyone led astray, whether to a God by name or a God of their own making or a God they're not even conscious of. 
There will be from among all nations a people who have come to know the one true God and have been saved because of what Christ has done. And all I want to say is, you don't want to miss it, friend. You just don't want to miss it on that day. The Lord will have worship from all nations. Return and be preserved. I've given you four reasons. The passage gives us at least four reasons. There is no preservation from God, friend, apart from God. Hidden in Yahweh is Zephaniah's name, and it's the message of the book. And hidden in Yahweh is actually a gospel truth before the coming of the gospel in the gospels. Because there is an omniscient king who cannot be duped. He, he cannot be deceived or hidden from. But he says, Psalm 17, 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. That's an Israelite speaking to him. The only place to hide from God is in God. And he is so willing. It is such his desire. It is exactly his purpose and his plan. Return and be preserved and be blessed and be cared for. If to this day you have never come to hide in Yahweh, he is so willing, friend. He is so willing for you to say, I give up my defenses. You say, but Frank, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how ashamed I am. You have no idea how bad I am. Great, I'm sure I don't. You're a total wretch. And so am I. But so what to a God who saves wretches? So what to a God who extends mercy for those who will? That's easy for him. This is his character. In the midst of judgment comes this stunning, beautiful call and reminder to his own people. Did you forget we were in a passage on judgment this morning? This is his heart. Well, we're going to see his character in judgment even more in the next section as he now turns to address Jerusalem. And don't worry, he hasn't left the keynote of judgment. Chapter 3, starting verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. By the way, if I'm just reading along in Zephaniah, and I don't have the cool little headings that are in my Bible today, I'm just doing an old school scroll, right? Who do I think of as the tyrannical city who is rebellious and defiled? Well, he's just spent three and a half, four verses talking about Nineveh, the, captain, the, the capital of Assyria. Sounds like Assyria, but we're going to find out it's the capital of his people, Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Pause there. Next, we learn in this passage, or we are encouraged in this passage, return and find the Lord satisfying. Return and find the Lord satisfying. Zephaniah is crying out to the people of his generation, and God's Spirit is calling to us today. This is the day of the Lord as it will be experienced in Judah. And it just doesn't sound good for Judah, does it? Two things I just want you to note quickly in these few verses. 
First, as bad as we are, the Lord is good. As bad as we are, the Lord is good. What do you get in verses 1 and 2? You get a description of the hearts and the minds and the consciences and the attitudes of the people. No voice, no instruction would she heed or listen to, no trust, no drawing near. But what you've got to see is the contrast. Because as bad as the nation is, as bad as we are, that and much more, the Lord is good. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her. Notice how verse 5 answers every phrase of description given in verses 1 and 2. By the way, one commentator has said, rebellious, deviled, and tyrannical represents um, a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with ourself, and a broken relationship with others. You can decide if you buy that, but I like it. It's certainly not far off base. She heeded no voice, and yet in verse 5, we have this God who is ever-present. He is within her. She accepted no instruction, and yet he is righteous, always doing right, always willing to lead. She did not trust in the Lord, and yet, are you kidding me? Verse 5, he will do no injustice. He is eminently trustworthy, no matter how bad or hard the day is. Most of all, she did not draw near to God. And where was he? Every morning bringing justice to light. But the unjust knows no shame. His people have played the enemy to him, but the Lord has been faithful. As bad as we are, the Lord is good. The other thing to see is as ugly as we can be, the Lord is beautiful. As ugly as we can be, the Lord is beautiful. Now we get verses 3 and 4, and here we have the description of the leaders of that day. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have forsaken, profaned the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. He goes down and just hits every major position of leadership in the nation, every God-given position of leadership. The leaders were cruel. They were wolves. They devoured and they left nothing over for the morning. They abused their power. By the way, throughout scripture, every time you come across it, you should just note it. The Lord has a peculiar judgment in mind that he reserves for those who abuse their authority. I don't care if it's a societal authority, a family authority, or a spiritual authority. God will always judge harshest those who abuse their authority. And that's what we see here. Man, that humbles. And yet, what do we see of the Lord God? As ugly as they could be, treacherous, reckless, profaning the sanctuary, doing violence to the law. This is the very thing that they were meant to preserve and, and hold up as sacred and consecrate. They have abused. It, it's like you had one job, you know? But it's just not that funny. And yet the Lord, and you could go down through every one of the character flaws of the leaders, he answers. He's righteous and he's just. He is eager to do good every morning. 
and he does not fail his law or his purpose or anything else. He shines with an unfailing goodness, with an unfailing truth in such a dark day, doesn't he? And Zephaniah is reminding the people of Judah in that day, you guys are going to go through hell. I'm sorry, but it's been generations of warnings and crying out and proclaiming and calling. And, and it's just, God has just said enough. So in your lifetime, Zephaniah says to the 620s Judah, you're going to go through judgment. But the Lord within you is beautiful. As ugly as it is around you, he is stunning and glorious and attractive and righteous. And what I want you to notice even more than that, well, I don't know that I can say more. What I want you to notice as much as his person and his character is to notice his desire. Go back up to verse 1. What does Yahweh want? She heeded no voice. He wants a people that he can tenderly speak to and reveal himself and lead by his own voice. She accepted no instruction. He wants a people whom he can instruct. She did not trust in the Lord. He wants to be your trust. And Zephaniah is saying to them, if you were willing, he would offer you all of these things. She did not draw near to God. This is what the Lord desires is your nearness. And he will at times do it through the attractiveness and the sweetness of honey and other times through the bitterness of vinegar and suffering. But either way, he does it for our good, and he does it to draw us near because that's his desire, and he's just that good. Friend, I don't know what you struggle with. I just know what my struggles are, what I'm tempted to love or serve or fear. But Zephaniah has a great word for me and for you this morning. All of your gods are going to starve. But there is one who can satisfy a weary soul. Return and find the Lord satisfying. See his character, see his heart. There it is, written all over this passage. Let's do it one more time. Isn't this fun? One more time, let's see his character and his heart. Lastly, Zephaniah will speak to us. Return and find new reverence for the Lord. Return and find new reverence for the Lord. Verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Three things I want you to note here and see. First, witness his power. Zephaniah is saying, witness his power. Verse 6, it's not like you guys don't know what I've done to the nations. It's not like you don't remember what happened in Egypt with I, when I led you out with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's not like you don't know what I did to their gods. It's not like you don't know. In fact, you know what's really stunning? 
Maybe it would take great-great-grandparents. I don't know if any would still be alive. Not a lot of people live 100 years. But in 722 B.C., when Assyria marched, remember having an Old Testament prof show us a map. See, let me, let me, let me show you a map of by the time Assyria was done, what they owned. And let's see, I want to get this right. From your perspective, Assyria is way over here. It owns all of this, uh, even including what will later be Babylon, all the stuff across the north. Got to go over the desert. And then coming down south, here's where Israel is, and down through Egypt. And there's some stuff here down below Jerusalem, but, but conspicuous is this dot around Jerusalem that Assyria doesn't own. You want to know why? I'll give you a number, 180,000. Anybody know what that is? Because the angel of the Lord killed 180,000 Assyrians one night to protect Jerusalem. So Judah survives Assyria. The northern kingdom is carried away. But Judah survives. It's not like you don't know, God says to them. By the way, you got to love this one when it comes to the witness of his power. Prophecy is interesting. There are times when the near prophecy and far prophecy will intermingle. And the Lord, for whom a thousand years is as a day, has no problem with that. Not sure what is the fulfillment of the prophecy against Cush or Egypt. But I can tell you pretty certainly what the one against Assyria is. Because guess what? In 612 B.C., about a decade after Zephaniah says, woe to the arrogant city, Nineveh will be squashed by Babylon. And so complete is its destruction, partly immediately and eventually over the course of time, that Xenophon, another ancient ruler at the end of the 5th century B.C., he will pass by the ruins of Nineveh and he will say, sand, desert sand, that's what Nineveh is. Verse 15, this is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, Xenophon said a couple hundred years later. Witness his power, Zephaniah tells us. What is that for you and for me? Maybe if today you're feeling dull and your vision of the Lord is dim, maybe you need to go back and Reread some answers to prayer that you've journaled. Or maybe you need to start journaling your prayer requests and see what God does to answer. Maybe you need to start talking to friends individually and just saying, hey, tell me, tell me about one thing the Lord's done differently in, in some way that he's changed your life. Let me share with you one way that God is changing my life this week. Witness his power. Second, hear his longing. This was the Lord's purpose, that the people would have a reverence for him. This is not an egomaniac who cosmically needs a bunch of puny little humans to bow and sing his praises. He doesn't need us, but he is willing to allow us to enter into his worship, and he chooses to condescend to let it give him glory. And hear his longing in verse 7, Surely you will revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. Four things 
he has said, a relationship of honor is what I want with you, that you would revere me. Willing instruction, this sounds just like verse 2 all over again, except instruction. In fact, it's the echo of that. And then, huh, would you be surprised to find that what he wants is to give a place of refuge so her dwelling will not be cut off, it says in verse 7. Hidden in Yahweh. That's what he wants. I, I think that's an accident. Zephaniah didn't even know that he wrote that, right? And lastly, divine favor, according to all that I have appointed concerning her. Do you know that God's promises for the nation of Israel, uh, they would never be fully rescinded until God accomplishes all of his purpose. But generation by generation, individual Israelites and individual generations may or may not have experienced the blessings of those promises. This is going to be a generation that's by and large going to not experience the blessing of the promise. But friend, if you know Christ, then the Lord knows all that he has appointed concerning you. And it will not be erased. But the Lord says we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, right? <laughs> you can enjoy my presence all your days if you will return and be preserved, if you will return and find new reverence, or you can miss out on all of that. Hear his longing. Notice this is the second, maybe the third time in this passage where the verse climaxes with this negative statement, end of verse 7, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. This is almost a jilted lover, if, if I wasn't a little bit afraid to say that, that, you know, God isn't needy in that sense. But hear the heart of a lover who says, this is what I wanted, but they were eager to corrupt. This is Jesus in Luke 13, crying out as he stands on the hillside, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I, how I long to gather you under my wings like a hen does her chicks, but you would not. He says, Luke 13, Zephaniah 3, same thing. Lastly here, I want you to return and find new reverence in the Lord. I want you to see this. Embrace him in confident hope. Our passage will end today with a close on words of judgment. And I think it's the right place to end I, I, uh, I'm tempted to stop a little sooner or stop a little later and end on a happy note. But I, I think rhetorically what's happening here, it closes on the note of judgment. But I'm sorry, I can't help it. I didn't write it. It's still a happy note. Because you know what the Lord says is in the midst of that judgment, if you know me, you have confident hope. So what I will do with this generation? Do you know me? Look at verse 8. Where does he end? Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Now, he's going to talk about gathering the nations together. He says, indeed, my decision is to gather the nations in verse 8. He has determined it to assemble the kingdoms so he can pour out indignation, anger, and his zeal. He will come in power but ultimately, that coming will be for the good of his remnant. So wait for the Lord. He will judge them faithfully. He will assemble them. 
God is telling the Israelites here, look, I own the nations. I'm, I'm not going to send a delegate to beg for the king of Assyria to show up. I'll just snap my fingers and he'll appear. And he'll go, where did I come from? How did I get here? I will make them stand before me, he says. And that won't be hard for him. And he will satisfy his wrath, that's the word indignation, because he is just and it is good that he judges. He is perfect in every judgment. And he will fulfill his holiness, that's the burning that you see in this passage in verse 8. And it's good that he will fulfill all of his character. And he will vindicate his honor, that's the word zeal, or your translation may actually have the word jealousy. Yes, he is jealous over his own, and I'm so glad he is. And yes, he is jealous over his reputation, and I'm so glad he is. And he will be vindicated one day. And yet at the beginning of all of that, the beginning of verse 8, this close to round it out, he calls for hope. Wait for me, he says. In fact, the Hebrew order is the same as my translation, the NAS has it. Wait for me. And then the quote is broken, declares the Lord. And then it goes on to everything else. And I think it's written that way because this is the timeless truth that can be spoken in any generation. The work of the Lord God on behalf of his people is always good. So wait for me is a true statement, regardless of whether it's the best of times or the worst of times. But wait for me is a choice we make. On that note, I want to just point out one last contrast this morning. Because it's what we just saw, and it's hanging in the air as he comes to this exhortation to wait for me. In verse 7, when it says, they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. In the Hebrew, literally, it says, up early, corrupting. And that's just the literal words. It's super cryptic. Up early, corrupting all their deeds. It's just a couple of verbs. And can you fit this together for me, Zephaniah? You left out some grammar, I think. No, it's a stunning juxtaposition. And it happens to be a reminder of something he just said two verses before. Middle of verse five. What does Yahweh do? Every morning, he brings justice to light. So here's the quandary of the people. Or here is the modus operandi, the typical life of the people. They're up early every morning, eager to seek for ways to rebel against their God. And you know what the tragedy is? The Lord was up even before them, waiting for them to wake up. He's saying, I want to show you my goodness. I want to I show you my light and my love. I want to draw you near and I want to give you instruction. Huh. But you would not. This is Yahweh, our God. He is not a hand-wringing God. Who can help but revere him whose character is like this, even in the midst of judgment, whose heart is like this and therefore brings such judgment? One who commands the nations 
On the day of his return, we're going to see it. Friend, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. I say this often because I just can't get over it. I'll see you there. And we'll go, you know what? Remember, this is that day you talked about the day when you were I three. And we saw that day. This is the day. Man, we're going to see it. <laughs> if your sight of him has grown dim, brother or sister, return. If you've forgotten the grace of your salvation and the love of your Savior, then return and find him worthy. Find him good profoundly good, even in judgment. Find him awe-inspiring, even in judgment. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've never seen him, you've never seen the goodness of his justice. You've never seen the faithfulness of his judgment and its necessity. You've never seen the mercy of his longing for you. Then come now and return to the Lord. Wait, return? Yeah, return to the Lord who is your maker who is your originator, who is the author of your life, whom you left and have never honored, have never loved, have never worshipped. Come today and embrace him in confident hope because he is eager to show mercy for he will come one day and he will judge. Return and find him satisfying, find new reverence and find for yourself a refuge. Stand with me and let's uh, close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we praise you and we stand in awe. Nothing is sufficient for your coming in judgment and your coming in glory and your coming in redemption and total silence. So what could I say? Gracious God, have mercy and speak to hearts and souls here today. Draw me, Lord, to return. Draw us who are your children to return and see you afresh this week. Our world desperately is bone weary for a people who have seen you and who have returned. And Lord, our God, if any in our midst, if any watching now in this moment, if any hearing these words at some other point of your ordination, Lord, have never yet returned to their maker. Ah, oh, Lord God, call them, draw them, help them. Let them know that you are willing to forgive and make them your own. Lord, you're big enough to take it from them. We love you. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.